If you would, please take your Bibles and let's go back to the book of James, where Pastor John uh, led us last week. It was funny, we were talking about what passages we were going to, to teach while Pastor Lance was gone, and I said, just let me know so that I don't get too far along in my study uh, of this passage. And he goes, well, I was thinking about doing James 1 through 12. And I go, great, I've been in this for about five, three days, James 3, 8, 13 through 18, so it worked out well. Well, last week, Pastor John shared a personal story from his time in college, and it reminded me of an interaction that I had with my father the Christmas of my freshman year. I had just completed my first semester of Bible classes, and I was filled with new and exciting knowledge of God's Word. My Old Testament and New Testament survey classes were so rich and informative, and it felt like I was finally getting to understand the forest among the trees, where particular stories fit in a timeline. So not only was I getting a sense of the, of the, uh, of the forest, but the trees looked awfully clear as well. I was gaining access from the customs, and the Bible was just so rich to me. Well, as is the danger of youth, knowledge was not only moving into my heart, which I needed, but it was going to my head as well, which I really didn't need at all. And it was never more evident than an interaction I had with my parents during that holiday break. I had come home first semester, a couple of weeks before Christmas, only to find that my parents had set up the Christmas decorations without me. Same decorations we always had, placed in the same location we always had them. The only thing that was different was my complete and total and overwhelming knowledge of the Scriptures. You know, the knowledge that is accumulated in 12 weeks as a freshman in college? Well, as would be yours as well, my attention was immediately drawn to the unbiblical rendering of the nativity that I found by the Christmas tree. It was a traditional nativity. It had baby Jesus, and it had uh, Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, the wise men, and all the animals all placed in and around this wood structure. And I thought, how could we call ourselves a Christian home with this inaccurate display of God's inerrant word? First of all, come on, Mom and Dad. First of all, there was a woman angel. Every reference in the Scripture to an angel is masculine. The New Testament word angelos is in the masculine. Secondly, and maybe more offensively, the shepherds and the wise men were together at the birth of Christ. Come on, Mom and Dad. The Bible makes it clear that the shepherds came, and then they left, and then the, the wise men came maybe a couple of days or a couple of weeks or maybe even a year and a half later. How could you get this so wrong? So, in a corrective and I believe helpful way, <laughs> I removed the wise men, and I placed them on the stereo on the other side of the room, and then to help anyone who might come to the house, I put a note next to it that stated that these individuals would not arrive for at least 40 days to up to two years. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, instead of my dad 
praising my newfound knowledge and wisdom, he said something along the lines of this. I may have cleaned this up a bit. (laughs) Hey, wise guy, you seem to have peaked a little early. You just finished your first semester of your freshman year, but you are already so sophomoric. I thought, oh, he's thinking that maybe I'm a sophomore already. He really has understood this knowledge that I have. Well, the term wise guy, as you can tell, was not a compliment. And the use of the term sophomoric was not in reference to my upcoming year in school, but my conceit. My overconfidence in the knowledge that I had acquired and my immaturity in applying it. He was not acknowledging my wisdom. He was saying, you're a wise guy. You're a fool. You've taken knowledge and you've used it harshly and in a conceited way. Well, in our text this morning, James is still dealing with the issue of teachers. James 3.1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that we will incur a stricter judgment. People who thought they were wise, thought they were full of wisdom, began to teach, and James is saying, Be warned, knowing that we will incur a stricter judgment. Pastor John led us through James' discussion of the tongue in verses 2 through 12, and its part in determining the qualification of a teacher. And it continues in our passage this morning, verses 13 through 18, dealing with the subject of wisdom, which either qualifies you or disqualifies you from teaching as well. So not only is there the tongue at issue, it's what you do with the knowledge that you've acquired. James wanted to warn his readers that not only does the devastating effects of the tongue lead to judgment, but one's lack of wisdom leads to judgment, disqualifies them as well. There was a general confusion that he had to address in his counsel. Wisdom and understanding in their thinking and oftentimes in our own thinking is focused around what we know. Dealing with the mind, a demonstration of intellectual prowess What one knew or how one could communicate that knowledge was the identifying mark of wisdom. And someone with great mental acuity and ability to speak was believed to be qualified and ready to teach. But James clearly wanted them to see it as something much more than that, much more than the acquiring of wisdom, the acquiring of knowledge, the acquiring of facts. He wanted them to see that wisdom was knowledge applied. Wisdom was knowledge that was used in their life, in their relationships, at work, at home, in their communities. Immediately after James' question in verse 13, look at verse 13. He says, who among you is wise and understanding? He follows it with, let him show it by his good behavior, his deeds in gentleness of wisdom. James is communicating to his writers that one's actions determine one's wisdom and understanding. The two words he uses in the question speak to that. The word wise was translated from the Greek word sophos, which referred to moral insight and skill in deciding practical issues of 
conduct. Taking what you know and applying it to your life. The second word, understanding, is translated from the Greek words which spoke of one who not only had knowledge generally, but that they had mastered an aspect of knowledge and become, became an expert or a specialist in that field and could apply their knowledge to practical situations. Who among you is wise? Who among you has information that leads you to action? And who among you has understanding this knowledge that is so specific that you know how to deal with particular issues in your life? Who among you is wise? Who among you has understanding? James communicates that to understand one's wisdom, one must look at their life. The wise and understanding teacher is the one who not only knows the truth, but applies it to his or her life. I like the way that Kent Hughes put it. Being wise does not mean we understand everything that is going on because of our superior knowledge. Being wise is when we do the right thing as life comes along. He challenges his readers to look not at their IQ score, nor their accumulation of knowledge, nor their ability to communicate, but to the lives that they are living. Be careful who teaches. You need to have wisdom. You need to have knowledge. He's saying that a life qualifies you to teach. James spends the rest of our passage comparing two types of wisdom. The wisdom of the teacher who was to be rejected and the wisdom of God. The wisdom from above that qualifies one to teach versus the wisdom from below that incurs a stricter judgment. And while the context of this passage is in relationship to teachers, this passage must be and can be applied to all of us here today who claim the name of Christ as the principles of wisdom are clearly laid out for us, defined for us. Earlier in this letter, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to you. All believers should be seeking wisdom. We should be seeking it in our lives. We should be seeking it from the Lord. And this passage defines it, compares it. James helps us answer the question, what is wisdom and what does it look like? He helps us answer the question, are we full of wisdom or are we merely a wise guy? As we study this passage together, I want us to see clearly the two types of wisdom that James is describing so that we can confess that demonstration of worldly wisdom that we see in our life that has crept into our hearts, that is manifested in our relationships, and so we can repent and pursue godly wisdom and grow in godly wisdom. But we also want to see these two types of wisdom in the original context that it finds itself in as it relates to teachers. Who should be teaching and who should not be teaching? 
Let's look at the passage together, beginning in verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Father, we come before this text as foolish people. As men and women who are demonstrating this worldly wisdom. And so we ask, Lord, that your word would be clear and penetrating to our hearts. That we would confess our sin and repent of it. Father, we ask that through this word and your Holy Spirit that we would learn what godly wisdom is and that we would seek it from you and we would pursue it with all of our heart's mind and strength. Father, may you convict and teach and strengthen us to live a life that is full of wisdom and understanding so that we can adequately communicate your word in whatever setting you would have us be. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Who among you is wise and understanding? The answer to this question is determined simply by how one lines up to the two types of wisdom described in the rest of the passage. We'll begin looking first at false wisdom, and then we'll move to godly wisdom at the end of the passage. By way of outline, each of my two points, godly wisdom and uh, worldly wisdom, uh, James helps us compare the two types, of, uh, two types of wisdom by answering the same three questions for both. How does this type of wisdom function? Where does this type of wisdom come from? And what is the effect of this type of wisdom in one's life? So let's begin with worldly wisdom. James begins with worldly wisdom or false wisdom, and I describe it as false wisdom because of what James says in verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. They would have immediately answered the question, who among you is wise and understanding by saying me? I am wise and understanding. They were deceived into thinking they were wise. They were proud and looked down on others because of what they had. Knowledge, smarts, communication tools. They thought they knew more than the simpletons around them, those foolish ones. But James says, don't be arrogant, for you possess the very opposite of what you think you have. You answer the question, me, I am wise. But in reality, as we go through this passage, they are truly the fools. Instead of wisdom, they're playing the fool. In verse 14, James answers the question, how does this type of wisdom function? 
Or in other words, how does this type of wisdom manifest itself? What, what are its characteristics? And James gives us two. Worldly wisdom is marked by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Bitter jealousy or bitter envy is literally translated harsh zeal. And it spoke of someone whose hands were full, but were concerned that they would lose what they had and yet still wanted more. You guys have all seen this as you've worked in the nursery. That little child who has this toy and they're fascinated with the toy and they're happy with the toy until another kid comes in with a different toy. They become upset. They become agitated. They want that toy. So they go and they take the toy and they begin to play with the toy. And the toy that they became dissatisfied with that they dropped on the floor, as soon as the other kid went and picked up the toy, he wanted that toy again. He wanted both. It refers to a life focused on self, my possessions, my plans, and nobody can get in the way. Worldly wisdom is this selfishness. The second mark of worldly wisdom is self-ambition. Self-ambition was a, a desire to be seen, to drive and push their way to the top. It speaks of having power and position. And the most graphic translation of this word was, uh, would faction and would be involved in kind of a party spirit. And it came to be known as the process a politician would go through to be nominated and elected. Think about those debates that we see in political times when election is there. It's not only about what I can do. It's about how bad that person is. And they're climbing on each other to get to the top, to get our vote. Combining these two characteristics, we can see that worldly wisdom is marked by selfishness, self-promotion, self-gratification. Getting, scheming to get oneself. A foolish person, someone who is full of, uh, of worldly wisdom is a person who thinks of himself. If we're trying to determine if a path is wise or not, James tells us that worldly wisdom looks out for number one. Gratification and position are the goals. So who should be a teacher? Look at how it's manifested. Do these individuals want, want, want? Do they want position? Do they want stuff? Or is it about their neighbor? about their Savior, about their God. See, worldly wisdom is the very opposite of the great commandment. For the great commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. The word love means to sacrifice for the well-being of another. Worldly wisdom is sacrificing for your own well-being. Jesus answers the second or James answers the second question in verse 15. Where does this wisdom come from? What is its origin? He begins by saying this selfish pursuit does not come from above. It does not come from above. Earlier in James chapter 1, verse 17, he stated that every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. 
This is not the answer to the prayers of James 1.5. If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God and he will give it. It does not have a heavenly source. So where does this wisdom originate? He gives us three answers to that question in verse 15. It is earthly, it is natural, and it is demonic. Each one bad enough to question this wisdom that comes from such a place. But when stacked together, it is as if the origin should repel us as much as the characteristics. A couple years ago, I wanted to love my wife, and so I wanted to take her to my favorite taco shop. My favorite taco shop is not in an area that you probably should go at night. But I took her there at night. There was some nefarious activities happening in the parking lot. But I was still motivated by the taste of the taco. My wife was not. My wife was willing to risk all the joy and pleasure that came from said taco because of the origin of the taco. This restaurant, this neighborhood, this location, these folks rejecting the taco based upon its origin. And there's a sense here where James is saying, just listen to this and you're not going to want to have anything to do with it. James tells us the origin of this wisdom first by saying it is earthly. This wisdom's source and boundary is the earth. It limits its focus on the things of the earth and it shuts out God. It's as if God is not a part of the equation. It views all things horizontally and not vertically. It springs from that which can be touched and tasted and felt. There's so much more, yet this is where this wisdom comes from. Secondly, it's natural. Opposed to the spiritual, it springs from the mental, physical, and emotional impulses of fallen humanity. It springs from the unredeemed flesh of humanity, that part that Paul cries out in Romans 7, I do the very thing I don't want to do. Who will set me free from this body of death? This wisdom comes from that part of you and I, believer, that has not been redeemed. It will be redeemed. We will be given a new body. But right now, our redeemed soul lives in a sinful, unredeemed flesh. Thirdly, demonic, that which comes from demons, authored by God's enemy, the type of wisdom that demons possess And they're all about corruption and lying and murder and destroying. This all makes sense when we think about pride and self-promotion and selfishness. For that is the, the mark of Satan. It's the description of life before Christ. Living for self, living for pleasure, living for prestige. It is what characterizes all of our spiritual enemies of the world. The, the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is the origin of this wisdom. Why would would we want it? James concludes this description of worldly wisdom, false wisdom, in verse 16 by answering our third question. What is its effect? What is the result of this type of wisdom played out over the long haul? There is disorder 
and every evil thing. The word disorder is translated confusion, instability, tumult, disturbance. And that confusion leads to evil or vile action and deeds. Where this type of false wisdom is manifested, there are disastrous results. Disastrous results in the life of an individual. Disastrous results in relationships, in communities, in churches, and at in the culture at large. And we are getting a front row seat of it, brothers and sisters. Watching it play out in our country, in our culture. We see it on the news, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and unfortunately at times in our own homes, in our own relationships. I cannot define a woman. A woman comes in second in swimming to a man, and he gets... The championship. Confusion, instability, tumult, craziness. When we live lives of foolishness or worldly wisdom, this is the result. When we sow this type of foolishness, we reap disorder. We reap confusion. This is not wisdom at all. This is foolishness. But there is a different type of wisdom, one that James is promoting and we are uh, the one that we are praying for. And in verse 17 and 18, James contrasts worldly wisdom with godly wisdom. And again, James asks the same questions of what this is. In contrast to jealousy and self-ambition, these two verses clarify and expound on what James said in verse 13. Godly wisdom is characterized by good behavior done in humility. In James 17, James, uh, in James uh, 3, verse 17, James gives seven characteristics answering the question how this type of wisdom functions. What are the characteristics of godly wisdom? He begins with the most important characteristic, and not just one quality among others, but the key to all of them. And he says, first, godly wisdom is pure, undefiled, free from all vices, sin, an impurity. Wisdom chooses the righteous path, the path of obedience, and it seeks to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in contrast to the fruit of the flesh. Purity in thought, purity in speech, purity in action. What is the wise path? Well, what is the pure path? What does God say about this path? What does he define as righteous? What does he define as sinful? That determines wisdom. Secondly, godly wisdom is peaceable or translated peace-loving. It seeks peace. It fosters peace, not at the expense of truth because godly wisdom is pure. And truth is pure But as far as it depends on the individual, it will pursue and promote peace. What is the wise path? Well, what is the path that leads to harmony and unity? Thirdly, godly wisdom is gentle. And this Greek word is not easily translated, but it has the idea of forbearing or courteousness or reasonableness. It refers to the respect for the feelings of others being willing to waive how one should be treated and treating them 
kindly and gently regardless. Wisdom is, wisdom is how you treat someone. Fourthly, godly wisdom is reasonable. It's open to reason. It's, it's willing to hear a better way than the way you originally thought it should go. Again, this doesn't compromise truth, but it speaks of those other elements of life that there is not a black or white, and it's your willingness to humble yourself and say, oh, there is a different way to do it. Fifthly, godly wisdom is full of mercy and grace. I'm sorry, mercy and the fruit and good fruits. And this is a combination of two characteristics which refer to an attitude of compassion to those in distress that leads to practical help. It is both an emotion, a feeling one feels when you see someone in need, but it goes beyond the feeling to how you would then serve them, help them, care for them, provide for them. The addition of the word full speaks of the abundant measure of that kindness. Wisdom doesn't just do that in small amounts. It overflows. Sixthly, biblical wisdom is unwavering, without vacillation. This person isn't tossed here and there by circumstances, but is consistent in their commitments. It, 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 it is what we sang about God. Great is thy faithfulness. He is consistent. On my best days, God is good. On my worst days, God is good. This individual consistently treats someone one way. No matter if that person has a need or doesn't have a need, he treats that person the same way. The circumstance does not change the person. Finally, number seven, biblical wisdom is without hypocrisy. It's not two-faced. The word spoke of the masks that actors would use to change from one character to another in the midst of a play. Biblical wisdom is sincere. It's free from pretense and genuine. It's the same guy all the time. You put all these together and you see that wisdom is a life lived out righteously before the Lord and kindly before one's neighbors and honestly before both man and God. Well, where did it come from? What, what is its origin? The beginning of verse 17 tells us. Wisdom from above. It is heavenly. This is the wisdom that God provides as an answer to the believer's request in James 1.5. This is what the good that comes from God, the Father of lights. Notice that each of these seven characteristics is either an imitation of the character of God or a response to who God is and what God has done. God is holy, and therefore we seek to be holy. We seek to be pure. God brought peace between us and himself and through the work of his son on the cross so we evangelize the lost so that they will find peace with him. And he commands us to love our neighbor, so we diligently seek to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He treated us in love when we deserved his wrath, so we treat 
our neighbor, not according to their sin, but according to God's kindness. God never changes, nor does his word. So we trust in him. We trust in his word, no matter the chaos surrounding us. He has forgiven us. He has adopted us. He has gifted us to serve him. So we don't need to be ashamed. We can be truthful and honest about where we are and don't have to put on a front and be two-faced because we trust in the identity. We are secure in our identity and position in Christ. And therefore, we don't need to act differently around people for acceptance and approval. It comes from above. It comes from our focus on and our understanding of the person and work of God. That's where wisdom comes from. Far better than an earthly, natural, demonic origin. This wisdom is from above. It is a response of our knowing and worshiping God. James concludes this description of worldly wisdom in verse 18 by answering our third question, what is the effect? What is the result of this type of wisdom lived out? What do I need to look for in the life of the person who will be teaching? What what do I need to look for to qualify them for that? Well, we see it in verse 18. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The effect, the result is a peaceful righteousness. James began this passage in verse 13 by saying that the wise and understanding demonstrate it through good behavior and gentleness. This daily conduct, which is stacked on top of itself with godly, good, noble, beautiful deeds that are done in gentleness. And this word gentle is different from the word we find in verse 17. This word refers to power under control. It referred to a horse that was tamed, a strong stallion that they tamed and it became useful to the owner. It was used of fire that could destroy whatever came into its path, but was but when placed in a fireplace, it produced a warm flame which heated a home or comforted a person. And really all it was was a controlled fire. There's nothing different between that fire and the fire that takes down a building. This good, these good deeds, the power that comes from being a believer, it is controlled in gentleness, in kindness, in how one is treated. And so the effect of godly wisdom has a life that produces a righteous harvest of peace with God. This life has a, has a comfortable relationship between God and this possessor. Because he's walking in according to God's design. It's a peace with others as we are treating and loving and demonstrating kindness with others and we are selfless and sacrificial. But it's also a peace with oneself because of the clean conscience that is produced inside of our own hearts. In determining if one has godly wisdom, James said that the harvest, the product, the result would be peace. So how does one gain such wisdom and insight? 
How does one grow in such wisdom and insight? Well, first of all, it comes as a result of salvation. When we come to God in faith, when we acknowledge our sin and look to Christ's sacrifice for forgiveness, we are described in one of the most beautiful terms as in Christ. This phrase, in Christ, is used over 160 times. In Christ. It signifies a relationship that we have with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it says, or Paul says this, But by doing this, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification. All of God's wisdom resides in the person of Christ. And we become rooted in that wisdom when we are in him. So if you are here today and you have not acknowledged your sin, you have not sought forgiveness, you have not believed on Christ's work on the cross, this wisdom is unattainable to you because the source is the person of Jesus Christ. Salvation results in wisdom. Secondly, it comes from a reverence of God. Psalm 110, verse 10, clearly states, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The more we know and the more we respect and the more we worship God, the more we will seek to be conformed to His character. And the more we will respond to His person. Where God is removed in the life of a person or a culture, foolishness reigns. And the more God is thought of and studied and worshipped and submitted to, wisdom flows from it. Thirdly, it comes from the intake, the meditation, and application of the Scriptures. In the great Psalm of David, Psalm 119, where David speaks of the beauty of the Scriptures, David says this in verses 97 through 100. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all of my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged because I observed your precepts. It is in the scriptures where we learn about God, about what is pure, about what is wicked, where we see love perfectly displayed, and so it becomes the example we follow. And then fourthly and finally, this wisdom, this godly wisdom, it comes from prayer. James already taught his readers in James 1.5. God will give this type of wisdom if we ask in faith, because he is a generous giver, and he gives without reproach. And every good and perfect gift comes from him, and this wisdom is perfect. Because of the characteristics listed in verses 17 and 18, we glorify God when we seek to live this way. God will provide us with this path of wisdom to follow. So may God grow us in wisdom as we seek to know him more. 
May, may God grow us in wisdom as we study who he is and how he lives and how he loves and what he calls important and right and wrong. May we grow in wisdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this clear description of the way of the world and a life lived in likeness of Christ, of a worldly wisdom, a false wisdom, Lord, and a a wisdom that comes from above. I pray that you would shine the light of your word on our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would convict us, rebuke us of where we have placed ourselves as number one, where we have blocked you out of the equation, where we have become confused and chaos has reigned. And Father, that our eyes would be fixed squarely on you and we would live our life in light of that truth and we would be wise. And then again, Lord, I pray that we would then teach, communicate your word, both in the lives that we are living, but ultimately through the life that your son lived. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.